We're in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 11, 1 this morning, and we'll begin as usual by reading the scripture, and then we want to talk about the key verse. And perhaps some of you wrote a summary. I didn't ask you an email again to, to do a three or four sentence summary, but if anyone did that, then we'll be glad to hear your summary of the passage. But uh, we especially want to look at the key verse, which verse in that passage is the one that you would choose as being the most important or the one that's uh, the, the most helpful in living a Christian life that is pleasing to God, just the key verse of the passage. And then we'll enter into our class discussion of the three discussion questions that I sent to you in email. So let's begin by reading the scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 11, 1. Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons." You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat what is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you meet here with us now this morning? Would you guide us through this study of your word Help us to see the, the, the important point 
and the wrap-up of that important point that Paul has been making for the last three chapters. And this is the culmination of it. It is a wonderful truth that we need to fully understand and employ in our Christian lives so that our lives are pleasing to you. Uh, We thank you for being able to be here this morning. We thank you for your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, remember, Paul has been making this argument for three chapters. It began back in chapter 8, verse 1, and it continues now to 11, 1. This is the end of that argument. Remember, the Corinthians had written Paul a letter, which we do not have, but we can tell what they ask him because Paul is now in this section of 1 Corinthians going through that letter and the questions that they ask him. So probably when you find the quotation marks in this passage, Paul is quoting back to them the words that they wrote to him in that letter, and he's correcting their misunderstanding. And remember the overall argument, and we're going to talk more about it in detail as part of our discussion questions, but you'll remember that the argument concerns things offered to idols and whether or not Since an idol is nothing, the God behind an idol doesn't really exist, then why shouldn't we do that? And Paul gives us the reasons why not that culminate in this this conclusion here that we're looking at today that is so important to the proper living of the Christian life. So let's, uh, let's look at our key verse. Did you have an opportunity to read through and pray about it and determine what you would select as being the key verse, the one that's most important, that that summarizes best this passage or that really informs the proper living of the Christian life? Yes. Um, I think it's from uh, verse 31. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Yes. Uh, 1031 is a great verse to pick here as the uh, as the key verse what did i say what it's a key verse but not the one the one that you're after oh <laughs> <laughs> I <got> the inflection <laughs> there. <laughs> okay okay i'm sorry yes <laughs> i think verse 23 23 Yes, and and they are arrogant, aren't they? And that's one of the things that Paul is addressing here. Now, they have good reason to be arrogant in a sense, and we've talked about that, the, the unique situation that the Corinthians were in and that unique geographical location on the isthmus as controlling the entrance and the exit to the isthmus of, of Corinth uh, that that connects the the lower peninsula to the mainland, and they control that, so that gives them great wealth, and they are unique among cities among, uh, of the Roman Empire of that time in their great wealth that is derived from their unique geographical position, 
And that in turn brings about a unique cultural situation where they have some some uh, ideas that are different than the rest of the Roman Empire. And they consider themselves to be unique. And they consider themselves to be better than. And Paul is now correcting those things throughout this entire letter of First Corinthians. So, yes. Okay. Yeah, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. All of these are great verses that would serve as the key verse for remembering this passage and for uh, being able to think back on what this passage is all about. Anybody else have a verse? Yes. 14. Yes. Right. Yeah. And remember that for us today, we don't really have that much problem with idols as such. But an idol is really anything that takes place of God. Anything that you put before God in your life is an idol. And, uh, and that includes false religions. It includes anything that takes the place of God in your life as, uh, serves as an idol for us today. And I think the instruction that Paul is giving the Corinthians applies to that. And 14 just simply says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And that very much sort of captures the idea of that entire three-chapter-long argument that Paul is setting forth here. Now, being Paul, he took three chapters to say, my beloved, flee from idolatry. But the Holy Spirit, being the Holy Spirit, has put some awful good theology for us in those three chapters. And no better than what we wrap up with here today that we'll talk about more later. And I, I chose 1031. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, my son Jared is here this morning, and Jared and I had an interesting time last night with chat GPT. Are you familiar with that, the, the artificial intelligence thing that's been in the news lately? And we put these discussion questions to chat GPT, and it answered them. Um, it, it got the theology wrong on one of them, but it was pretty good on the others. And we also asked it what the key verse was. And it came up with 1031 and gave us a very good reason for it. So I probably shouldn't have told you that because now everybody will come in with, a, <laughs> with an artificial intelligence answer for them. And you will never know whether this is my teaching or the, or the computer's teaching. But it was very interesting to sit there and, and see how it, in about five seconds, came up with several paragraphs answering those, those discussion questions. So key verse, I think, 1031, all those other verses would serve just as well. So let's look at the discussion questions. First of all, uh, we've asked this question several times before in the class this year. In 1014, which begins, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What is the therefore, therefore? 
What is the Okay, and which is? Okay, the immediate, immediately preceding is that God will, uh, will help those who are tempted. It says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, flee from idolatry. If you go back further, the beginning of that last paragraph, now these things, talking about what happened in the wilderness wanderings with the Corinthians, or, or excuse me, with the, uh, with the ancient Israel, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And they were guilty of idolatry, weren't they? And then he continues, therefore, flee from idolatry. And I think, I, I think I'm correct in saying that since, since this is the culmination of this three-chapter argument that he makes, that the therefore applies to all three of those chapters, uh, because he's summing up here. This is the because statement that that gives the conclusion and gives an excellent solution to the problem of the Corinthians if they will listen to him. And it's applicable to us as well. So, the therefore looks back, and it's important for us. The reason I ask this is important for us whenever we see the word therefore to get the context and look back and see what the therefore is there for. Discussion question two, and I divided this into three parts. So you see I snuck in five questions instead of, and, and called them three. But in 10, 16 through 20, Paul compares participation in the Lord's Supper with participation in pagan sacrificial meals. He makes a big thing here out of that word participation. And that's a part of his conclusion and his solution to the Corinthians' problem of, of claiming Christian freedom, freedom in Christ, freedom from the law, and demanding to be allowed to exercise that freedom, regardless of the consequences for other weaker believers, whatever that might be. And Paul is addressing those concerns. Did anybody in your reading of these verses that I've given here and in your general reading about this passage, did you find out what the Greek word is for participation? It's important to us here at Second, yes. Koinonia. koinonia. Uh, participation here is koinonia. And, and there's, well, let me, let me go ahead to the next part. I don't want to give the answer. Uh, what does the word, word participation mean both here and as it is used in the entire New Testament, these verses will help. And so I gave you some verses from different places in the New Testament. And you should have been able to discern there, I think, three or four categories of meaning for the word participation. And this becomes especially important in the conclusion of Paul's argument here and as it applies to the Lord's Supper. He's making a comparison there between 
the Lord's Supper and participation in the Lord's Supper and participation by, by the Corinthians potentially in pagan sacrificial meals, making the claim that it's okay because we have freedom in Christ. We have liberty. And an idol is nothing. No such gods actually exist, so it doesn't matter that we do that. So, what did you find out that participation means? Yes. Yes. So we are participating in the death of Christ. Philippians says uh, we participate in his sufferings. So we are identifying with Christ, aren't we? So the word participation has this idea of identity. And uh, somebody else raised their hand. I don't remember who. Yes. We're down to enjoying in heart and mind. Enjoying in heart and mind. Join, enjoined in, in heart and mind. Uh, again, this idea of becoming one. There's this idea of becoming one in, in something. Any other ideas? Fellowship. And the word is indeed translated fellowship. So our koinonia ministry, which is visitation with our shut-ins, is to maintain that fellowship with the body of Christ here. Uh, the folks who cannot attend regularly our worship service are nevertheless incorporated into the fellowship, the oneness, the identity with, with us as a congregation and with, with Christ. So... Koinonia is an apt name for that ministry, I think. If I, when I went through and looked at these, I can see several categories of where participation is, is used here in the New Testament that I think helps us in, in understanding how the Christian life is properly lived in such a way that it's pleasing to God. First, as we've talked about, is participation in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is wonderful because it is a reminder. The thing that it's reminding us of is of our identity with the other members of the congregation, isn't it? But it's more than that. It's a reminder of our identity with a larger Christian community worldwide. All true believers we have an identity with, and we are one with in the fact that we all accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and, and, and because of the work that he did on us for us in the cross, at the cross, uh, is also his identity with the church of the past, isn't it? Because, and that's why we confess the Apostles' Creed and, and the Nicene Creed and our Westminster Confession is because it gives us that sense of identity with all of those Christians who've become, become before, who have come before us who make the same confession. They also partook of the Lord's Supper. And perhaps even it is oneness with those who are yet to come, those who have not yet been effectually called and regenerated and justified, but will be. So 
participation is is very important from the from the oneness with fellow believers. Even more important is the Lord's Supper reminds us of our unity, our oneness with God himself through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So uh, there's that vertical aspect of it as well as the horizontal aspect of it. Very important for us to understand and very important to Paul's argument that that indicates a oneness, a fellowship, an identity with those things as we partake in the Lord's Supper. It also, as it's used in the New Testament, speaks separately from the Lord's Supper with our fellowship with with the Son. First um, Corinthians one nine that we've studied previously. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Looking ahead to Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. The word fellowship there is the word koinonia. It's participation, that oneness. Uh, there is also, uh, if we read Philippians 2.1, that, uh, that says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. In Romans fifteen twenty six, he talks about participation being an identity with those who are unfortunate, fellow believers who are in some difficult situation. And he says, from Macedonia and Achaia, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Second Corinthians 8, 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Second Corinthians nine thirteen. by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. The word koinonia is used in, in each of those verses. In uh, Galatians 2.9, we see where there was a participation, a koinonia, an identity, a oneness among the, those early Christians and especially the apostles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me and that we should go to the Gentiles and to the circumcised. So there was a oneness there. There was an agreement and identity that they were all working together. Uh, he talks in Philippians 1 about your partnership in the gospel. All believers, not just ministers, have an interest in and a participation in the gospel message. So participation becomes a very important word in the in the New Testament, and the way Paul uses it here is important to the conclusion of his argument, the oneness. And if we look at the next part of it, 16 through 20, Paul compares participation in the Lord's Supper 
with participation in pagan sacrificial meals. Compare these two passages here in 1 Corinthians and Deuteronomy. What is the true supernatural power behind idolatry? No, there's the two verse, two passages to compare. What is that true spiritual reality behind participation in pagan sacrifice? Today we might say false religion. Who is it they're actually worshiping? What? Oh, I'm sorry. I, don't, I have to remember to look in that direction. <laughs> yes, demons. Yeah. So they're really worshiping demons. It's not just a chunk of stone or bronze or whatever they fashion the idol out of. It's not even the God that they think is behind that representation because they don't exist. But what does exist behind that are the domain of Satan. It's, it's the demons, he says. Uh, he says, what do I imply? Do I imply, uh, I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. He's telling the Corinthians, look at what participation means within a Christian context in the Lord's Supper. And now look at participation in this false religion, this idolatry. You are participating in that, in that false worship. You're becoming one. You are identifying with demons. Yes. I guess everybody saw or heard about the openly satanic ritual of the Grammys. I, I I read something about the performance of the, the one of the musical pieces that was performed. I don't watch the Grammys. Never. I don't I don't think you can. It's it's bad, and I think that this time was probably worse than than ever. Yes. Um, I, I use the Spirit Zodiac's Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the editor, and he suggests that the word participant in that verse means companion. Okay. Yeah, it means compa- companion. Um, the participant there is not koinonia, it's meta... No, I forgot, meta-echo. Meta means with or alongside of, right? Like Facebook has changed its name to meta because of the interest today in the metaverse the virtual universe that exists alongside of the real universe. So this is a meta echo. Echo means to have. So it's to have something in common with and, and to be alongside. So it's being alongside, uh, being a companion with demons. Okay. Third part of that question, how does Deuteronomy 32, 17 through 18 characterize participation in idolatry. So if you look at it here, the answer is right at the very end of that passage. What is it? How does it characterize that idolatry? What are you actually doing if you engage in any form of false religion? 
Yes. We haven't gotten to verse 21 yet, but the thing that I'm most concerned because I'm thinking about evangelism and outreach and things like that, um, that you can't have light and darkness together. Right. You cannot participate in this. Yet, how many, quote, evangelicals claim biblical Christianity because they made a, they said a prayer, you know, maybe 20 years ago as a kid. Right. And they continue to live as devils. Yeah. Then what I would say, it can't happen. So then I would say, you know, are you truly saved? You know, that kind of thing. So I've been equating this whole thing to my view through evangelism. And of course, verse 21 talks about, can I drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons at the same time? It doesn't work. Yeah. You can't serve God. And not be called out of it and then claim biblical Christianity. Right, right. You can't serve both things. It's, it's incompatible. The thing I, I want to emphasize about the Deuteronomy passage is in verse 18. Here's the way he categorizes this, this idolatry. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. It's rebellion. It's turning your back upon God. It's forgetting God and being unmindful of the rock that bore you, the rock that for the, for the Israelites brought them out of bondage in Egypt. And they, they have turned their back. They have forgotten him, uh, the God who gave them birth. And that's, uh, when you think about, that's a horrible thing. So any kind of thing that we put before God is for us an idol, and when we do so, that's an act of rebellion, of turning our back on God and turning our back toward anything, or turning our face toward anything else. Helen and I had a pastor many years ago now. Uh, we, we grew to love him. Only see him at funerals now occasionally. But every now and then he would get so wound up in his sermon, he would say, you people need to remember the rock out from under which you was dug. And uh, and uh, so I think about that every time I read this passage about being unmindful of the rock that bore you, and and you forgot the God who gave you birth. And the last thing, how do you char- characterize that? Turning your back on the rock. Question number three: <coughs> What is Paul's main point of eight one to eleven one? Uh, what's the conclusion and solution he summarizes in chapter 10, 31, verses 11, 1. In the interest of time, let me just, let me summarize that. This goes back to 8. Remember chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 began, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, and here's one of those quotations that apparently is a, a quotation directly from the letter, that all of us possess knowledge. And this knowledge, he says, puffs up, but love builds up. And so then Paul proceeds to, to correct the error that the, that the Corinthians say that, well, we have not, we know there's no such thing as a, as a God behind those idols 
that they're worshiping. So it's okay for us to go in the temple and have a sacrificial meal there if we're invited to do so. He continues in chapter 9, if others share this rightful claim on you, that's the claim that Paul himself is making where he says, I have a right to be supported by the churches that I minister to. And that's a fundamental right that we recognize now, that those who minister to us have a right to be supported by us so they don't have to work. But Paul says, I give up that right because it might stand in the way of the spread of the gospel. So he voluntarily gives up that that right. And that's the point he's trying to get across to the Corinthians. Yeah, you may have a right to do something that's a neutral thing, and the Bible doesn't say you can't do that, so therefore you insist upon doing it. Paul says it's better if it offends another Christian, if it causes them to stumble, to give up that right. And he says, um, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right to expect support, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And then in chapter 10, we studied about where he said all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. That's in quotes again, where the Corinthians were apparently saying that in their letter to him, all things are lawful. But Paul says all things do not build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And then finally, here's his conclusion to that entire argument in 10.31 through 11.1. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So here's the final conclusion. Here's the solution to their problem of misunderstanding Christian liberty and insisting upon their right to engage in in all of the liberty that they have regardless of the effect it has on others. What did Christ answer when he was asked what's the greatest commandment? You you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying here. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And give no offense. Paul says, I please everyone in everything I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Let no one seek his own good, back in chapter 10, but the good of his neighbors. So, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the conclusion. That's the solution to the Corinthians' problem. And... and that's, that's a wonderful thing to keep in mind and to understand and to implement in our own Christian life. That, that's the whole law wrapped up right there in those two things. Here's the outline. 
We'll look at it briefly. <clears throat> Three points. These points are all commands. They are imperatives in the original language. They are also in the present tense in the original language. Present tense in Greek is an, is an, um, is an emphasis upon the ongoingness of something. Something's going on, uh, continuing. So flee pagan worship, he's saying continue to flee pagan worship. Keep at it. Keep doing it. Flee pagan worship. Uh, seek others' goods. Keep on seeking others' good. Pursue God's glory. Be pursuing God's glory. And then if we go back and look at that first point, flee pagan worship, there are three ideas that he sets forth there. The first of those is evaluation. Then he makes a comparison. And then... A provoca- he mentions a provocation. The evaluation is in verses 14 and 15 when he says, I speak as to sensible people, judge not for your, judge for yourself what I say. He's telling them to judge, which means to evaluate, to critically think about what Paul is saying and to arrive at a sensible conclusion from that proper evaluation of it. And then he makes a comparison in verses 16 uh, through 18 when when he uses the word participation in describing our taking of the Lord's Supper and all of the aspects that we talked about of participation in that. And he, he, he says there's a participation in Christ, a participation with fellow believers, a participation in the altar in the case of the Old Testament Levites who ate of the food that was offered on the altar. So they participated and they became one. There's a participation with demons on the part of those who are worshiping idols. And he says you can't have both of those participations. They, they're mutually exclusive. You cannot do that. Don't go to sacrificial meals that were apparently common and and for people to invite others to come to their sacrificial meal in the temple. Paul says you can't do that. He makes a distinction between buying the food in the marketplace where you don't know where the food came from. And he says don't ask questions. Uh, it's, it's, it's okay because that was the main source for meat in the in the marketplace. So participation then becomes the sort of the core of the argument here, being one of, of identifying with these different things. And the, the provocation is in verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? God is a jealous God, isn't he? Not jealous in the way that we are jealous sometimes, but God has entered into a covenant relationship with his people. I will be your God, you will be my people. And God protects that relationship. Our responsibility to protect the relationship too. We often fail in that. God never fails in that. And then to seek others good. Uh, It's the essence of Christian liberty in verses 23 and 24. 
All things are lawful, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, not all things build up. Don't seek your own good, but seek the good of others. And, and then the use of Christian conscience in 25 through 30. 25 says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now that's what God taught Peter, wasn't it? When he had the vision of all that different food that was all forbidden under the Jewish religion. And, and God told him to eat. And he said, no, I'm not going to eat pig. I'm not going to eat that. It was probably barbecue in that thing. And Peter says, I'm not going to eat that. And, and God taught him that all things are good. With thanksgiving, all food is, is eatable. Um, Paul says, don't let conscience, somebody else's conscience get in the way of your conscience, but you are acting to protect their conscience, not your own. You're, you're free to do this. You know that, but you're going to voluntarily give up that right. And then finally, the conclusion of the argument is to pursue God's glory. That's the solution. To do it in all things in verse 31 and to do it by imitating Paul. Now, we've talked about this before, this equation in mathematics, a principle of mathematics. If A is equal to B and B is equal to C, then A is equal to C. What's the principle called? Two math genius, geniuses back here. What's the principle? The, the distributive or the transitive, it's both. Um, and, and notice what happens here. The B goes away. If A is equal to B and B is equal to C, then you can proceed in your mathematical proof on the basis that A is equal to C. And where would B go? It's not needed anymore. So Paul is not being prideful here in saying imitate me. Paul is saying imitate me as I imitate Christ. So in the equation then, if A is the Corinthians and B is Paul, C is Christ, then the Corinthians imitate Paul and Paul imitates Christ, what happens to Paul? He goes away. So he's not calling attention to himself. He's saying imitate Christ. It's, it's that transitive property, the passing through, the dis distributive property of, of, uh, of A is now equal to C. It's a good principle for us to remember. It is essential for the proper living of the Christian life so that we live a life that is pleasing to God. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful conclusion that we have to Paul's argument. Uh, we thank you for the wonderful theology that we have learned there and the, and the wonderful practical applications of that that we have seen here in, in chapters 8 through the beginning of 11. We pray that you would help us to keep that ever mind, be ever mindful of that, that you would help us to so order our lives that and, and participate in our sanctification by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to become more and more like Christ, to glorify you and to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.